Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today we welcome Tyler Dolly of Big Bluff Ranch in Red Bluff, California. Big Bluff is a family-owned and operated ranch where they lead with quality, health, and happiness as their guiding principles. And while they say Big Bluff Ranch may be a small organic chicken farm, compared to the high-yield industrial operations, they are actually one of the largest producers of pasture-raised chicken on the West Coast. Today, Monty and Tyler explore the path Big Bluff is taking to build a resilient food system that fits their context. And the great thing is Tyler is willing to share not only their successes, but also their mistakes so they can help growers learn from his experiences. Tyler describes himself as the head chicken wrangler. So listen in and you'll learn why. Welcome everyone to this edition of the Aggie Merge podcast. Really appreciate you being here today. Excited to be joined by Tyler Dolly. He's with Big Bluff Ranch and he is the self-proclaimed title of head chicken wrangler where we were debating ahead of time we should talk about if he was the vice president of of poultry production but uh, head chicken wrangler is is more my style personally so i do appreciate that welcome tyler how are you today i'm great thanks for having me looking forward to it awesome so tyler we love to ask everybody just tell us your story you know where you're from and and what you um you know where where you started and what brought you to where you are today sure Yep. So we are Big Bluff Ranch. We're located um, in the Sacramento Valley in California. So we are a couple hours north of Sacramento, four-ish hours north of the Bay Area. Uh, we're up um, kind of, we're up in the uh, the wetter side of the state. So we're not in the Central Valley. We're, we're up north where the water is supposed to be. Um, and our, our story is, uh, well, in 1960, grandpa bought the ranch and the reason we're big bluff ranch is not because we have big hills although we do but the real reason is when he told graham that he bought a ranch he's like no you didn't you can't be a cowboy or a rancher you're just that's a big bluff you're joking and so lo and behold a little bit later he brought graham and my mom and her siblings up here and boom there you go big bluff ranch so well, that is an interesting way to name your ranch. I, that's for sure. You're right, right. Well, they, I mean, they were, you know, they were city people. They were first generation agriculturists. I mean, I guess they grew up on, you know, like little homestead type idea, you know, but they weren't big ag. And so the ranch for grandpa was a uh, kind of a hobby. Um, he was making some good money in the city at the time, and he was able to have... <laughs> A pretty nice ranch as a hobby and that didn't last very long you know a fool and his money and all that sort of stuff um well i came out a little harsh grandpa was not a fool but <laughs> the um so what happened is that 1960s this was a weekend getaway for my mom and her siblings and they would come up and grandpa would play at being a rancher and do all sorts of fun stuff and then in the late 70s my parents moved up here permanently um, and then in the early eighties, uh, grandpa basically gave the ranch to his kids and the kids realized that they weren't going to be writing checks to keep the ranch and that the ranch had to make money on its own. And since my mom and dad were here, it was kind of on them to figure out how to, how to turn this ranch into an actual profitable agricultural business. And they didn't know what to do off the get-go. Um, and they ran into a guy named Alan Savory um, back when he was first starting to teach in the States. So he put on a seminar just south of Red Bluff in a town of Willows, which is even smaller than Red Bluff. And there was, I don't know, 10 or 15 people there. And that's where my dad first got introduced to Alan Savory, you know, that back, back in the very, very, very beginning days. And so we pretty much follow the path of um, holistic management. So we, you know, I was still pretty short at the time, 
but he put in extra fences. We started doing range management. We started having native perennials come back. We started messing around with our genetics, making our animals fit our landscape here in um, a Mediterranean climate. You know, we didn't want to feed hay. It's silly to feed hay in California. We never have snow. Why would you possibly need to feed hay in, in an area with no snow? Um, so we got away from feeding in the winter and um, all this kind of happened up through the 90s. In about 2000, when I graduated from college, um, I, I went down to a college in L.A. Well, rabbit trail. I went to a college down in L.A. And when, through high school, you know, I was helping my dad. I was out there relatively a fair amount, but I had no desire. Well, A, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I certainly didn't think I was going to come back to the ranch. But as soon as I went to the college, I had a fall break, you know, like, I don't know, six weeks after we got there. And it was like, okay, what's everyone doing? They're going to Tijuana. They're going to the mountains. They're going to all these sort of places. I'm like, I'm going home. See you later. Like, this has been too much city for me. It's time for me to go home. Um, and so that was pretty much the beginning of me realizing that this is, uh, this is it for me. I mean, I don't know. You know, it, it, yeah, like most most farmers, like it's really tough to conceive of a different place to be spending my life. I could probably do it. It would probably crush me if I wasn't here, but I would I could survive, but it would be pretty crushing. Anyways, to speed up the story, we went to direct marketing with grass-fed beef um, through farmers markets. We were in the middle of nowhere. Our major markets are hours away, as I mentioned, and so we never made that work. We moved to a meat CSA model, which was a little better, um, where I was delivering meat to um, locations. And then kids came along and I didn't have as much time as I used to. So we started shipping meat and that was okay, but it just never really took off. I didn't know what I didn't know. We'll probably cover that a little bit later. And then we got into pasture poultry. I went to an eco farm, an organic conference in down in Monterey area and I met a guy who could raise more chickens than he could sell and I could raise more chickens than I could oh I messed up my saying he could sell more chickens than he could raise and I could raise more chickens than I could sell and boom we were off to the races so that was 2009 so for the past however many years that is we have been uh pretty decent scaled pasture poultry producers uh for essentially under a contract white label type deal so we grow the birds and someone else slaps a label on it and they get all the credit but they also get all of the headache and uh I was very happy with that still I'm pretty happy with that we do a fair amount of it but with COVID you know things got uncertain and we've been moving into direct to consumer marketing e-commerce so that is a long and winding story of why we are talking well, it is an amazing story, and I think it shows your uh, resilience and dedication to, to making it work. And what's really, I think, interesting about your story is Grandpa started the ranch, but it sounds like from what you said, I could be wrong, he had um, alternative income and the ranch was uh, was the weekend thing. Yep. Mom and Dad had to kind of figure out how to make it pay for itself is kind of what I heard. And now he, you're there making a living off of it. Yep. as your primary income. Did I have that right? Pretty much. Yep. Well, so just think about that. That is, you're definitely against the current because that's the opposite of what most people are doing. You know, maybe grandpa had it actively farmed, made the money off of it. Uh, the son or daughter works in town, gets some auxiliary income off of it. And then the third generation works in town, doesn't even know where the farm's at, just gets a check or else turns around and auctions it. So Congratulations for for being the opposite of what is happening <laughs> on land tra transactions today. And I think, personally, one of my my top five things that I think are dramatically affecting agriculture is lack of land ownership by the operator. And uh, uh, congratulations for for fighting that trend. Uh, that that's a big deal, right? No, it is it is a big deal. I mean, and we work so. In our area, in our neck of the woods, basically our ranch is about half the size of what it would need to be to be a conventional cow-calf operation. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so we have always just from, and we are not a very fertile landscape. The, the, the class one soil in the Sacramento Valley is 20 miles that way. We're, and the, and you're pointing to the East, I assume. I'm pointing to the East. Yes. Yeah. I'm pointing to the East. Oh, you're, and you're in behind the me to the West is yeah. when you get up into the timber country. So right. money's right. to the East, money's to the West. We're stuck in the middle where there's no money. Kind of rolling so we are, annual grasses. And, and we all. are on annual grasses and we've got hillsides and, and uh, chaparral. Yeah. So we, we can't just do things traditionally without thinking about it, that there is all, you know, we have to, you know, I can't remember who said it. Someone said it. We had a whole bunch of values here at the ranch and we have unbundled them and we are trying to monetize them in, in, in any sort of different way that we can. So we have a, a hunting program. We have a little bit of ecotourism. People come. We have a big manly lake on the ranch that people come up and fish and recreate at. Um, we rent out winter range these days, even though we used to run it ourselves. We have a little beef herd still, and then now we do thousands and thousands of uh, pasture chickens a year. So, you know, we even though we do a lot of chicken, we are still <laughs> still still pulling all the strings trying to make money wherever we can. So I think it's interesting, too, for people who aren't with from California or fully uh, familiar with the California geography. You know, when he says that he's two hours north of Sacramento, four hours north of the Bay, you always think of. Uh, all this population in California and, oh, it's a huge state. And, you know, ha, he'd have no problem selling what he's raising because there's all those people. But honestly, from where you're at up to the Oregon border, uh, there's only one big town and that big town is Redding, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yep. uh, it's it's pretty sparsely populated for California where you're at. So I think that's that's good for people to keep in mind your context. So to get a customer, you you don't wait around for them to come to you, do you? No, you have to find them. And yep. is that what did that require for you with your your experience? Did that just come natural to you? Because you were in the wholesale business essentially, you were saying up until COVID, but COVID hit. I'm sure it dramatically affected that wholesale business because that, they were probably going to restaurants and such. Nobody could go out to eat, and California was on lockdown for the longest of about anybody. So what was that like all of a sudden when you had to make that transition and, and seek out the customers instead of just raising the, raising the product? If you Right. Ask. Well, it's, it, I mean, I am uh, by no means am I an expert at this yet. Um, so the, just to make numbers, the make the calendar round up. So from 2000 to 2010, we were direct marketing and that was an advanced version of farmer's markets where I had a very crappy website. I did a very crappy newsletter and it never really, it went anywhere. And those people were basically finding me almost by accident. And what, wasn't that mostly beef you were saying earlier? Uh, well, I kind of skipped over. We did a whole bunch of stuff in the 2000s. So we were direct marketing and that we knew that we had, so our ranch is either flat or it's steep and we have brush. So really beef is not a great animal to raise out here. It just doesn't really fit our Mediterranean climate. So we went through goats. We ran a couple hundred head of does for a few years. We went through sheep. Um, we tried pasture pork and that was not, uh, <laughs> I'm not a pork person. I've got along with just about every animal, but pork pigs now they, um, we don't, we don't do pigs. They're, they're a pain in the butt. Um, and then, so we kind of backed into chicken because everyone else by the end of the two thousands, everyone else was at the farmer's markets that we were going to with grass fed beef. Mm -hmm. And many of them were doing it as a hobby or were not valuing their time fully. And so they were basically undercutting us, right? They were like selling their ground beef for $3 a pound because the grocery store was $2, right? You know, they weren't actually figuring out their actual cost of production, and so we're showing up with our, I don't remember the prices, $6 a pound ground beef, because that's what we needed to make to make a living. And they show up with $3 a pound. And of course, everyone goes over there. But we're still in business because we actually, you know, try to make money at it. And all those hobby people are, they're gone. You know, they're, they just don't stick around. Um, so that was part of the reason why we switched to the wholesale thing is I went from having to talk to a whole bunch of people and convince them that our prices were worth it. And they would definitely know that our beef and at the time was better, but they never understood that it, they, they, you know, it was a, 
it was a passing fad for them, right? They're like, oh, I bought some grass-fed beef. I'm so trendy. And then something would happen and they'd go back and buy the grocery store stuff. So I, it was tough for customer retention. Um, so when we got into wholesale, it was great. I was like, I don't have to fight with these people. I've got two or three people I need to make happy. And, you know, I can sell as many chicken as I want to two or three people that I have to make happy rather than having to find hundreds of people that I had to make happy. So the the 2010s, uh, that, was, that was what we were doing. Basically, we had two to three big wholesale accounts, one really big one and some minor ones. And I just had to keep them happy. And they allowed us to learn how to grow pasture poultry at scale. You know, we both, we both suffered a little bit, you know, I, my production was not always perfect and their cash flow was not always perfect. So it, it worked out in the long run. We both got annoyed at each other, um, but it worked out. And then the COVID obviously happened and we had gotten up to, we were producing, what were we up to? About 50,000 birds a year when COVID happened. And that contract went away like, hey, you know, I can't even take the birds you have on the ground that you're I contracted and it was just I'm out of here. I'm gone. Good luck with that. <laughs> and I don't you know, he had to do it. I'm not mad at him at all. That was just he had to do it. It was but it definitely left us kind of up the up the creek. And it just so happened. It was miraculous that there was a direct marketing company that we were able to swap over to and they took over the contract. So we missed two harvests, something like that. It was amazing. Um, but then they died a COVID death too, but it took them about 18 months before it really kind of caught up to them. And that was where it was like, okay, now we need to go out and start finding people and doing this direct to consumer thing. We can't you know, single point of failures, right? We have a really good product. We have a really good production system, but if we're only selling to one person and that person says, we don't want you anymore, there's no commodity market for pasture chicken, right? You know, pigs, you can take to the local sale barn, goats, lambs, cows, like worst comes to worst. You can just get rid of them somehow. There's no, there's no way to just get rid of a chicken, especially when you have, you know, 20,000 on pasture, right? You know, uh, so, so to some degree, raising chicken is pretty uh, tightrope. You know, you really have to make sure that the person who you're growing them for is not <laughs> is actually going to buy them because you don't have any other way to uh, get rid of them. Anyways, I've talked a lot. Did I actually get to your no, did, no. did I get to your question? You did, and I think what you allowed us to understand is that let's say for a farmer listening to this, and they're like, "Hey, wait a minute, I don't, I don't care about chicken. I don't want to do chicken." I don't know smart, anything. About smart chicken. farmer. Chicken's, chickens. Well, there you go. But uh, chicken's not for me. I think the key is, is that as a farmer, you, if you look at your journey over the last 20, 25 years, uh, all the transitions that you've been through, uh, the reality is those transitions will continue into the future, right? So you, you don't, you don't give up. And I think some key elements, you're not raising a commodity. Uh, therefore you need to sell it, but because of that you're able to retain more of the margin, right? So um, you know, whether you're growing corn or soybeans, there's opportunity to grow more value add, whether it's, uh, you know, vine crops, almond crops, you know, tomato crops, those kind of things, always looking for those opportunities to get closer to the customer is always better and, uh, predicts your survival, right? You are determining your destiny instead of a order consolidator of some type. You're, you're fully in charge of success or failure. So I think that's a, that's a key point. And, um, I think it's interesting, um, uh, Eco Farm Conference. I've been to that too, out in right. uh, Monterey Bay. There, it's a it's a good uh, good conference. But um, today, you, you're not messing around. You got quite a few chickens for pastured poultry. You know, fifty thousand for for a barn guy is nothing. It's two barns, right? You know, it's six, twelve weeks of production. But for pastured, that's huge. So, what's it? Talk to us more now about how you're doing it. How are you making this happen? Right. I assume so, it's not on the steep hills. I assume it's on the flatter land. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Is that yeah, non-irrigated, by the way, the flatter land, or are you irrigated? Uh, we Depends on how much rain we get. Um, so that reservoir that we do ecotourism from, okay, we yeah. actually um, can irrigate out of it. Okay. So if we get decent rain, we can irrigate. Um, but, you know, when you really crunch the numbers and uh, figure out your, you know, your labor and the cost of the water and your actually return to it, 
we don't irrigate all that much that it's we don't really have a way of turning that water into grass and turning that irrigated pasture into a high value product that justifies the time of because we have hand lines out here we don't flood we don't have pressure it's all hand lines and so when I was a kid that was great my dad didn't care he's like go change the pipe yeah, and now that I'm older I'm like I don't really want to go change the pipe it's you, a, don't you have kids uh, not yet, not old enough yet. Well, you you need to get some kids to tell them to go change the pipe, you know. Yeah, yeah. Give uh, <laughs> give them a couple years, and I'll kick yeah. them out the door. There you go. That'll be that'll be an interesting discussion. Um, so yeah, so we don't irrigate. Um, really, what we are trying to match all of our various animal enterprises to the environment that we actually operate in. And so California has cool, wet winters and warm, dry summers. There's really not a lot of green grass in the summer in California. So if you are creating green grass in the summer in California, you are to some degree cheating the system somehow or other. And the appropriate regenerative term is you are out of context. Ooh, that's a good one. Yes, yes. I am out of, yeah, you would be out of context. You are farming out of context, so. Okay. Anyway, so we, yeah, so we don't really irrigate very much anymore. Like, yeah, we have a little bit around the house because it's nice to see green things. It's very clear that the human species likes green grass, but as far as making a living on it, it, we don't really do wide-scale irrigation. So our our style of um, pasture poultry is what, they would broadly call day range. So what we do is we have homemade hoop houses that we set up on in a spot on a pasture. We brood in these hoop houses. When the birds are the appropriate age, two to three weeks, we open up the doors out of the brooder and they are on their chunk of pasture. They live their life on this chunk of pasture and the older they get, the farther they walk to the new grass. And then we harvest them, we pick up all this infrastructure, we move it to a brand new fresh location on the pasture, run the cycle again. The old spot um, has six to 12 months of recovery time. We try to make sure that every spot goes through at least one growing season before we come back to it. Uh, If we irrigated, we could come back quicker, but because we choose to stay in our context, um, we don't irrigate behind, yeah. We don't re-irrigate behind our chickens very often, um, but we do, we're messing around with cover crops, you know, for, for winter grazing. In a perfect world, I'd love to get some sort of summer cover crop situation going where, you know, like a teff bell bean, I don't know, it's fun stuff like that, um, but we haven't really got there yet. We've messed around. It's not dialed in. And so that's it. So each one of our flocks takes uh, we raise about flocks of 3,000 at a time. We've got two full-time employees. So with two full-time employees, um, we can crank out 72,000 chickens a year uh, pretty easily. So that's one of the reasons I like our day range style is that we are really labor efficient. That, you know, just it's easy. Two guys, and they're working pretty easy at 72,000 birds a year. That is not a crushing workload. They, uh, in fact, that I like to joke, they fired me out of the field. Like this is, this is my idea. They helped me obviously, but this is my idea. Now they're like, we don't need you. Leave us alone. Go sell more chicken. You you should be in the office. Don't, don't come out and help. We don't want your help. You're not worth it anymore. I'm like, man, I got to go be an office guy. This sucks. I tell you, it's, it's, uh, it's a bad thing to not be wanted. So. I know. <laughs> the only time I ever talk to them these days is they bang on the door and they're like, this broke, go buy something new. Like, <laughs> I talk to them more than that, but it, it is kind of a joke. So you're, you're um, using more of a set paddock arrangement versus a mobile range coop arrangement. But uh, when you come back on that over a year later, you give them full recovery. I imagine you don't set the barn up on the same spot that it was set up before because you're going to get different grazing pressure within that paddock based on where the barn was because, uh, Science has determined that chickens are chicken and they're, they're afraid to, uh, you can call a chicken chicken and they're not offended, but they're, they're afraid to range too far away from shelter, right? For predation. So you, you probably dot the location of in different locations across your landscape, I would assume. And uh, so you're getting that rotation there over a, a longer period of time you hit it versus a mobile range coop would be, you know, more evenly distributed, but 
anyway, you're getting it done. They've got access to bugs and grass and, and having a great life and all that. So, um, I go to buy one of your chickens. I'm a consumer. I want to buy one of your chickens. And I look at the price and I look at the price at my local Walmart and all of a sudden I'm like, Whoa, wait a minute. I can get one of those Costco chickens down there for $5 roasted and everything. And you want me to spend five, three to five times more. What, why do people do that? I mean, what, uh, I mean, there's a, just because there's additional costs. I'm assuming your, your costs are more than a $5 Costco chicken. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> How do they, uh, how do people take that? And, and how have you found that people will pay a premium for, uh, a, in this case, animals, but, you know, anything that's raised in a different way, how have you been successful in making that happen? Right. Uh, well, success, let's just say I'm working towards success. But um, first thing I would say is that, and this is a hard one. It's, I mean, we have to struggle with this all the time. We are not our buyers. We would never pay this much money for a chicken. Are you nuts? This is this is so expensive. But we are not our buyer. We are agriculturalists. We are both cheap and poor all at the same time, right? We, you know, we just internally we are never going to go buy expensive stuff. I think there is a genetic modification when you choose the the farmer profession. That the cheap gene is is inserted yeah. into your DNA, and uh, <laughs> it it is a strong strong gene. <laughs> right. So so the first thing you have to do is you have to understand that on a dollar and cents basis, you have to figure out how much it actually costs to raise this raise this animal and then how much you need to make to be a sustainable business. And that's your price. Like you got to just commit to the price. Don't, you know, work from internal numbers out. Don't compare yourself to the grocery store chicken. Don't compare yourself to your neighbor like they're all different. That goes back to why I was complaining about the grass-fed beef people in our local markets is that they were not looking at their internal numbers. It was very obvious that they were basing their pricing off of what um, people either would pay easily or what the grocery store was. And that is a terrible way to price your retail, to make a retail price because you're never going to make enough money. So that's kind of the first thing is to just know your numbers and, and be just know what they are. And it, if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, don't bother because you're you're better off doing nothing for nothing than something for nothing, right? Um, so that that's kind of the first one is to just really know and believe your numbers and be like, you know, so we are certified organic, pasture raised, no corn, no soy. So basically, it, and we have done, that's basically three strikes and you're out. We are the most expensive chicken you will ever come across there is it would be very hard to come to make a chicken more expensive than the way we do it um and that but those additional attributes for the customers who are not us who have an entirely different mindset that it is tough to wrap your mind around they see value in those things and for them they're willing to pay that extra money that they understand that this chicken is a better chicken that it can what's one of my little themes i like to tell people is like look there is such a thing as a better chicken it you know and people don't really i think understand that you can think of the beef you can think of better beef you can go to grass-fed you can think of prime you can think of wagyu you know there is there is an understanding that you can get a higher grade of beef um but everyone thinks that chicken is just supposed to be cheap and bland, that they don't understand that there's actually a spectrum that you can produce a chicken on. And that's what we kind of have to educate them on is like, hey, there is a spectrum. Our chicken is actually good. Chicken, you know, tastes like chicken is not an insult. It's a compliment. Like you can actually have a really yummy, you're like, oh my God, that tastes so good. You can get a chicken that good, believe it or not. Um and so that is what we're doing. So by having all these high attributes on our chickens, we are going out and we have kind of developed an avatar, uh, a customer, uh, a model customer who will uh, understand what we do, accept the price that we do and be happy to pay it. And for us, we're kind of aiming at an ethical eater. So what we do all all of the things we do out here you know we're regenerative 
or grass-fed, holistic management, you know, riparian restoration, native grass renewal, all this sort of stuff that there is, there's, it's tough to capture that value and put it into dollars and cents. Um, but there are people out there who do know about that and care about it. So one of the ways I characterize this ethical eater is basically think of a vegetarian. No one's really born a vegetarian. At some point in their life, the vast majority, at some point in their life, they made an ethical decision that, I don't know, for whatever, eating animals is bad. Animals raised in those conditions are bad. I don't know, for some reason, they made an ethical choice. And then very likely because vegetarian diets are really not probably great for the human body, they're going to be like, oh, I'm tired. I can't sleep. Uh, I need, I want meat, but I believe ethically that I shouldn't eat meat. So what we do is we position ourselves with all of these attributes as an ethical meat person. So you can say, if you buy chicken from us, I am a vegetarian who eats chicken, right? It, right, it doesn't make sense, but that our chicken is raised in such a manner that it meets their ethics requirements. It's humane, it's pasture raised, all that sort of stuff. So that's how we go about trying to find people to buy our chicken is to find people who have issues that our chicken solves and I'm not perfect at it, but that's, that is the journey. That's the whole direct marketing thing is find a person who values what you do and then find more of them. So of your 72,000 birds or so that you're selling, uh, how many of those are roughly whole? How many are cut into pieces that you're doing as a percentage? Right. So we, and it probably if if I did not have processing limits, I would probably say two thirds would be parts and one third would be whole. But sure. because our processor is um, only processes so many, it's the other way around. It's about one third parts and two thirds whole. Okay, so now just so people understand the context that may not have been shopping for organic, corn free, soy free, pasture raised. Uh, are you heritage breed too, or corn no, free? no? We we that's the only thing we don't do. We could okay. do that, but then that's that's oh. a bridge too far, man. We can't okay. go. That okay, far. well, you, you're just this side of the cliff. Okay, well, yeah, we'll yep. <laughs> uh, Help help our listeners know what what do you charge for a whole bird on a, let's say a four and a half pound bird. Or do you raise them that big, I guess? Or Yeah, yeah. no, we do. I mean, if you're going to, yeah, you, you want a leftovers if you're going to have a chicken this good. Um, so if it's that good, you're not going to have leftovers. Come on. <laughs> well, depend, yeah, that's why you make them a big chicken. So we, um, yeah, so our retail price before we start shipping things around is going to be about $9 a pound. And then when you start adding shipping on it, if you're in, you know, one to two days shipping of, California, you're probably going to look at 11 to 12 bucks a pound showing up on your door. Yeah. So that gives our listeners an idea of what, what he's accomplishing at scale. I would consider this definitely a scalable business, right? So you've, this is your full-time income. You have two employees or three, you said, so um, this works, right? Otherwise we wouldn't be talking today. So right. you know, farmers, you got to keep that in mind. You can't be afraid to charge for the value you are creating, but he's listened to his customers and what they want. And a lot of that's in how the animal's raised. There's no proof that that might be better. And this is the traditional kind of protectionist argument that we're making as farmers. Well, there's no proof that corn-free and soy-free and organic and raised on pasture is making any better product. But I think the proof is you have customers paying $9 a pound retail for a whole chicken. So talk to us about that. Okay. So we got a lot of corn farmers, a lot of bean farmers. Buckle up, get ready for this feedback here. Why are customers asking for no, no corn, no soy? <laughs> they need uh, to know this. They really need to know this. I mean, the no soy thing's been out there for a while. The no corn has really creeped up here in the Midwest. I've had a lot of requests for it in the last 18 months. Prior to that, I had never heard of it. Soy free, I've heard of for, you know, ever since I started five years ago. But talk to us about why does the customer want that? And right. So, so soy, soy free. And I, they are worried about estrogen, like hormones, compounds filtering through. So if a chick, they think if a chicken eats soy, it will have extra estrogen compounds in its meat. And that if they eat that meat, they get the estrogen I'm, from I'm the a, meat. 
I think I can say this without Kim censoring me. We'll see. Uh, I'm watching her right now, but uh, uh, soy free. We want to avoid, uh, you know, phytoestrogen, which can lead to man boobs of all things. So we we want to we want to avoid that, right? <laughs> so yeah. and, and hormonal imbalances in women too. Correct. Right. And I I have seen people cite studies on both sides of this equation, and I can't read the science well enough to tell you which one's right. Um, so for us being out of California, California can't really grow soy. We were too dry around harvest season. So yeah, your closest for, soy is going to be actually in eastern Kansas, eastern Nebraska. So it's it's a long distance for soy anyway. Right. So we trying to fit our context, our ecological or environmental context. Um, I, yeah, we're, we're good, man. I, I like that. Um, so if we can't grow soy in California, why should we be feeding soy? That ultimately we're trying to create a resilient food system and that putting a large distance between our food, our feed supply and our animals is silly. We can grow other sources of protein here in California. We can, you know, uh, field peas and camelina. I mean, there's, there's stuff around here that we could use as a protein replacement for soy. So that's one of the reasons why we provide no soy. I know our customers find value in, in the no soy attribute, but I'm doing it not so much for their health concerns, but more for my production values, right? If I don't have to bring in soy from the Midwest, like I'm a little bit better off. Um, the and the corn thing, I don't know. I, I I hear it go back and forth. Mostly, what I hear about people worrying about is uh, GMO issues in the corn, and then also worried about how much various herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers it takes to grow it. Um, and so that's their reason. Our reason is again that in California, yes, we can grow corn, but it takes a lot of summer water. We don't, you guys back there have this thing where it rains in the summer. I, I just don't understand it. It blows my mind. We don't have rain in the summer. If we do, there's something really weird going on. And so if we need to irrigate corn to grow it in California, it's probably not really a context appropriate species to be raising here. So that's kind of our our philosophy. So corn replacements could be wheat, could be milo. There are things that we can grow in California that are, um, you know, uh, almost good equivalent to corn. And so we have we provide a no corn, no soy chicken for our customers and they see it as a benefit because of their various beliefs. We do it because on our side of things, we see it as more ecologically appropriate. Very good. And so. Luckily, those two things align. And in general, just for, for those out there that uh, maybe aren't in the pasture poultry business, but I mean, this is adding significant cost to you. So the organic is adding probably about $2 a pound, just in being the organic certification. Soy-free adds about a buck. Corn-free probably adds about 50, 75 cents. So, I mean, right there, there's there's three fifty to $4 of your, of your price difference compared to conventional feed on pasture. So... Those, right. those are high value attributes that you're that you're basically passing that you're not keeping. It's it's passing through to the to your mill or whoever's providing the feed for you. Yeah, uh, We're, we are not making a ton of money at nine dollars a pound. No, no, so, <laughs> no, no. I I do not have I do not have my sailboat in the Bahamas yet at nine dollars a pound. Right, right. You, you're you're settling for a power yacht in Florida. I understand. No, uh, maybe I'm joking. totally. Joking. Yeah, yeah, not even a you know maybe a nice vacation to maybe, Lake Tahoe once every couple of years. Maybe a dinghy on Lake Tahoe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the Aggie Merge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture, along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome. We provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. So uh, processing. So a lot of people complain about processing in regards to beef and just how terrible that is. But when you look at uh, small ruminants, uh, swine and, and, and beef, 
very easy to find processing compared to poultry. So how have you been able to successfully secure poultry processing? And uh, you'd have to be USDA labeled if you're shipping out of state. Uh, those are few and far between and getting harder and harder to find. What's that challenge been like and how do you address that? Um, well, when we first started going wholesale, um, our buyer had already done the legwork and got us in in the door at a processor. You know, this was 13, 14 years ago, 13, something like that. Um, so the state of pr custom processing for poultry in California is you basically, there's one and a half options. So there is a plant in Modesto that we use, which is about four hours away. And we are actually one of their closer clients. There's another plant that you can get into, but they don't really want to do it. And they don't, they do a great job on their own stuff, but they don't really care about custom. So they're just like, here it is. You get what you get. And you're like, this isn't what I wanted at all. As many people have gone to processors know that you can always put in your cutting instructions, but what you get back, eh, you never know what you're going to get. Surprise. <laughs> yep. So, so for us, we just, we have the one plant that we've been going to for 10 plus years. Um, and you just got to know them, you know, and we luckily we've come to them with enough chickens at a time that we have a little bit of credibility with them. We've been going there for so long that they pretty well trust us that we're going to bring good quality birds, the same number that we say, the same time that we say, and then we just uh, pay whatever price they want because we don't have an option. Yeah, yeah, it's, it really is. People think there's, uh, you know, uh, oligopolies in, in fertilizer and chem and all that jazz. It's in, in the processing business you know, they're the only show in the state. So yeah. Yeah. And if anyone's thinking about custom direct marketing meat of any sort, the first thing you should do before you even figure out anything is where are you going to get it processed? Because if you can't get it processed, it don't matter anything, right? That, that is the key link that is outside of your control. So, you know, that's so, so important. And, you know, for instance, it's, we're in February, early February, I'm already scheduling my harvest dates in December mm -hmm. and that's, you know, that's, they're, they're being nice. Like they're already booked up. They're making, they're, they're making room for me in December. So, you know, you gotta be thinking at least a year ahead of time with your harvest dates. And, you know, if you're doing beef or you're talking about at least a two year grow out, three year grow out, I mean, you gotta have your processing lined up years ahead of time. And you don't even know if your beef are going to be ready in time. That's the real killer. It's like, you got the date, you can't shift it. It's like, they're going this Friday or they're going this Friday, you know? So it's, it's rough when you're looking at the processing end of things. So that is definitely the, the first step to do. The only good part about beef is though, is if that your processing, processing dates, uh, your animals are ready and the processing dates still two to four weeks away, you're out some feed. Okay. Right. In chicken. Uh, you, you're taking in turkeys, you know? yeah. so, I mean, it, it's so tight on, on everything and how it's scheduled. Uh, so that's, that's super important and a great tip to have your processing lined up. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we know, we know to the day how old our birds are going to be when we process them, that we get our chicks on, they arrive in the mail on Tuesday and we know depending on how many weeks and depending on the season that they're going to get killed on a Friday. So we know to the day. And there's no, there's no changing that. So if your birds aren't growing, they're going, if they're growing too fast, they're going that you have because the, you know, they're so booked in that you can't like, I would love to be able to adjust my harvest date by like two days early, two days late. Like I could really like so many of the people you want to sell to want, like, I want a three and a quarter pound average. Like, well, I can't do quarter pounds. Basically, as they're getting close to harvest, they're gaining about a pound, half a pound of carcass per week, more or less, give or take. And I can't do it. Like, you can get you a three and a half, I can get you a four and a quarter, or I can get you a five. I mean, I can't do three and a quarter because I can't change my dates. Right. Um, so that's just one of the, one of the, one of, it just is what it is. But you get into a routine, you dial it in, you know, just chunk, chunk, chunk and crank them out. So on your, in your case, um, is everything now being sold by you or you still do some white label? Uh, uh, 
we do very little white label. We do a, a reasonable amount of co-labeling where someone else sells it, but our logo is on it. Okay. And then we are now, you know, growing our direct to consumer where it's only us. Do you think a time will come when you are the person who's white labeling somebody else's meat? So let's say somebody wants to get into this, but they want to raise them for the land benefits and, and those kind of things, but they just don't want to, they want to start like you did. And right. You think well, you I mean, at first I'd have to prove that I can actually fully market our own chicken, but here, here's the, now who was I talking to? The, the, clo well, I mean, we all know this, we're all producers that the lo the closer you are to the actual production, the less money you actually make at this, that if you can actually nail down a marketing where you can create a product that people see value in that creates a transformation in their life, you make so much more money as a marketer that there, I know grass fed, grass fed beef people who don't raise a single steer. They just buy in the meat, slap their, this is cavalier, bring in the meat, slap a label on it and then ship it on. And all they're doing is arbitraging their marketing knowledge, creating a story that customers want. And they make so much money with none of the headache, you know? So when, when I'm crunching numbers on our wholesale versus our um, retail direct-to-consumer stuff that I can sell 50,000 birds wholesale and I will make the same dollar amount of profit as I would on 20,000, 25,000 direct marketed. You know, you know, it's just like you make money on the marketing side of things. You don't make money being a producer. You're probably everyone listening is a producer. I'm a producer. I would prefer to be out there in the field right now with the chickens, but this is where I make money. When I'm sitting at the computer, I'm talking to people, I'm putting together offers, I'm crutching number. And so, yes, there is a there is a version of the future where I would be white labeling other people's stuff um, because that's, that's where the money is. Someone else has all the headache. If all I had to do was buy someone else's beef and sell it as my own, like if I could market well, that would be really easy. I would make so much money. But what that's 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 kind of the reality of direct to consumer is that you don't make money being a farmer, you make money being a marketer. So where is the space in in this place to where we can have farmers who like you know be with their chickens and that kind of thing, but in a, a marketing style cooperative that uh, <laughs> pays dividends back to the producer instead it becomes its own crazy giant behemoth uh, and out of control. Right. You know, just a, just just another Tyson with a co-op sticker on it. Um, how do you, uh, how does that happen? Because, you know, I know several producers who would like to get into this because, you know, the organic fertilization capability of poultry is amazing. Running them in orchards, uh, you know, short duration post-harvest of an annual crop. Uh, they're beautiful because they come in and they leave. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not like you have to have a spot for them for three years, like like cattle or or for, you know, forever, such as in sheep, when you grow your flock. I mean, it's a, it's a in and out uh, and a quick, quick return. Is there a place for that? What, what could you envision working there as far as, let's say, you know, California pasture poultry and, and, you know, you may be supplying, but there's a hundred people supplying into this and then they market it from there. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly. Pass all the profits back to the producer, not, right, not right. to have a shiny building. Yeah. Yeah. No. So um, I don't want to name drop our producer, our, our processor, because they're a little shy. You never want to make your processor too, uh, too visible, but they are a cooperative already that they bring in a different type of bird and they, they're a cooperative. And that, that's how they actually run the plant is that there are probably 60 producers. They all bring in birds to the plant and they sell it on. And they've been in business since 19, geez. 1950 something or other um so and then i've talked to other producers it what it's a totally valid idea it's a great idea what it's really going to take is someone who is not a producer who is a marketer first who <laughs> who comes to farming after being a marketer and will wants to put it together for the right reasons in the right, right way and takes advice from the producers as to what's reasonable and i think it is hugely a huge opportunity that, you know, they're, 
what organics have been growing 20% year over year, 50% year over year for the past 25 years, you know, sustainable is a buzzword these days. Uh, Regenerative is a growing buzzword these days that the consumers are more educated and they're looking for these things. And if you look at the success of butcher box and the success of um, grassroots co-op, I think that's who they are, you know, that there are these models of people of these companies where they are buying in other producers product somehow making them their own and then selling them on and that you know that and they're growing uh what is the other one uh, there's a like there's a bunch of them if you're trying to go buy stuff online the example is there um but it really it doesn't come generally speaking it doesn't come from the producer up it comes from a marketer kind of like putting producers together the way i see it um but yeah, if you can pull it off, it's great. We because we've sort of been part of some of those things, some of our wholesales, and it's fantastic. You know, you get some name recognition, but someone else deals with all the accounts receivable and and dealing with chefs who don't want to pay or they quit and switch to a different restaurant or food service who decides that their airline breast order should actually be, you know, a whole leg order, but they wanted it yesterday. You know, it's like Hey, if I just have to grow and you deal with all of that, great. I'm willing to give you a cut of the pie to have that fun. Yeah, fun it is. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing is that to these people, it is fun. I mean, that's the cool thing. Like, it, 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 you know, I'm not a hugely into the food service thing, but we have had done, definitely done tours for meat distributors and and some chefs and they come up here and, you know, they love talking about this and that and the other thing and all the stuff I'm just like cringing at. And they're like, they're like diving into it. They're like, oh yeah, I cold called this guy and I've got him on this sequence. I talk to him every three day, you know, whatever it is. And I'm like, that sounds like torture. And this guy's like all pumped about it. I'm like, great, you do your thing. You know, that's what it is, is you want to bring in different talents, right? We are good at growing pasture poultry. Um, they're good at pasture pork. Now, if we can just kind of link that up with someone who likes to sell a restaurants and link that up with someone who likes to do e-commerce marketing, like, then you're kind of putting talents together where everyone's doing what they love. And then that can kind of, you get some momentum going when you put people in the right seats on the bus. Um, but finding the people, finding the right bus and then finding the right people to put on the bus is where the magic is. Well, we have a good, great uh, book reader. So that's, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Mr. Mr. Collins is happy here, but that is, that is so true. Finding the Right people on the bus, putting in the right seat is is key to success. So tell me about this. Uh, dust off your crystal ball. Okay. Next 10 years, where's your farm going to be? And where's the pastured poultry industry going to be? What's it going to look uh, like? So in 10 years, what, and this is a little crazy. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I understand that this is crazy, that I want to be producing on Big Bluff Ranch, a California appropriate meat case and that means that if you go to your meat case at Rayleigh's here in Red Bluff it looks like the exact same case as your meat case as Kroger's back where you're at or whatever your local grocery store is but those grocery stores are in vastly different contexts because that's now my new term for the day different ecological contexts so why should you have the exact same meat case when you're living in different ecological environments? That doesn't make sense. That somewhere you are cheating the natural system to make that so even. So what I want to do is make a California meat case. And so that means that because of our Mediterranean climate, not too much grass-fed beef, probably only in the spring off of the spring grass, a lot of lamb and goat because we have lots of brush. We have lots of hills. Um, the Mediterranean climate, the way the grass grows is very closely matched to the physiological demands of small ruminants. Um, and it's delicious anyways. If you haven't done it, you should eat lamb and goat because it's totally worth it. Um, and then if we're doing poultry, you should probably in general eat less poultry. It actually is a pretty ecologically costly protein. But if you are going to eat it, it should be eating feed that comes from an ecological footprint of nearby. So here in California, that's a no corn, no soy chicken. Back in the Midwest, sure, go for corn and soy. I, don't, I mean, it makes sense. You're living right there with it. You know, it would be silly to bring in 
I don't know, field peas or camelina from, you know, the Northwest out to Kansas. Like, why do that? You got soy right there. So that's kind of where we would be at is creating this, this California meat case, supplying roughly a thousand to 1500 families, all of their protein needs. So find people who believe in what we're doing, sign up for a monthly meat box. They'll get every single protein they would need that is appropriate for California, does all sorts of amazing regenerative stuff out here on the ranch. And yeah, because what we do out here, we are the top of the watershed. So the single drop of additional drop of water we absorb out here into our soil is one less drop of flood down where they live, right? You know, so had paying us to take care of the watershed or water catchment, depending on which buzzword you like, is valid and is worthy and that there are we're next barrier has four million people i think you know some of the highest you know income earners in the world there's got to be 1500 families in the bay area who think the wackiness that we do is worth their money so that's that's kind of where we'll be in 10 years probably less if things go well and pasture poultry so pasture poultry is gonna it's gonna grow they're like you're talking about, they're going to become integrators in the pasture poultry world who are going to find producers, people who want to produce, but don't want to market like a vital farms version, you know, something like that. And there will, it will grow that we are probably in the pasture poultry world. We are roughly where a grass fed beef was in like 2005 or six, where lots of people know about it. Lots of people know that it is better, but it is still too expensive for mass appeal, but it's going, it's growing. And so, I mean, as crazy as it is to think about going into chicken, um, if you can get a production system dialed in for your context, keep an eye out out there for people who want to buy and then wholesale chicken, you know, it's, it's kind of the next thing really. So and there are companies out there, there are rumblings like Purdue bought pasture bird. Like there are, it's happening. Like these, these big players are making a, uh, making moves. So 10 years from now, I think finding grass or pasture raised chicken in the grocery store is almost, almost a certainty. Well, very good. One of the things you mentioned to me earlier was um, you like to be available for people who got questions and can reach out to you and those kind of things. Uh, What's the best way to, to get in touch with you? We'll have the links and such in the show notes, but uh, go ahead. What What's the best way to reach out to you? Right. Just uh, go to our website, bigbluffranch.com. Uh, be shocked and amazed by how much money we get for our chicken. Um, and then you'll see my email there, which is tyler at bigbluffranch.com. Just reach out. I'd love to talk about more. We spent 15 years. Well, I keep rounding my numbers. I don't know how many years I've been doing this. I, I pick whatever number sounds good at the moment. We've spent 15 years figuring out how to raise chickens like this. We have made probably literally millions of dollars of mistakes to figure out how to raise chicken. No one else needs to go through that sort of pain. If anyone's interested in getting into pasture poultry, I would love to give you one or two steps down the path and <laughs> get you from square zero to like maybe one or two. And then I'll kick you off and then you can go make all of your own mistakes. And, uh, but at least you're making, uh, making different mistakes than the ones I made. That's, that's a good thing. So, no, I, I appreciate uh, what you're doing, um, the trail that you're blazing. And it's, it's great to see you providing high quality meat that people can choose because of how it's raised and how it's fed. Um, it's excellent. And I'm with you on our pasture poultry. I'll, uh, I love it. I mean, it's just night and day different. You know, the fat color is is yellow it, it freaks some people out because they're like why is this yellow and you know and the fat is just so delicious and that's where all mm -hmm. the nutrients are at and the dark dark meat color and uh it, it's you can just visually see it and it's filling so and it, and it don't taste like chewing on a stick of wood so that's <laughs> that's that's good so i appreciate all that you're doing and i'm sure we'll have some folks uh there in the central valley that will certainly reach out to you if not from folks from all around the country uh, and take you up on your offer to learn a little bit more. So I do appreciate your time today, Tyler, and, and thanks for coming on. And I wish you a, a great season here as you move forward with probably plenty of grass, thanks to the rain that we've had this year. It's been a good year. Finally. Yep. We need those every now and then. So, 
Well, very good, Tyler. Thank you so much. And uh, stay tuned. I'm sure you're going to see a, a lot of things coming. And I like the California appropriate meat box that you're looking at for, for the future. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. It might as well, might as well do it right. Excellent. Thanks again. We appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation today. I think you could really hear Tyler's passion for raising pastured poultry, along with his willingness to continue to learn, refine, and perfect their operation. That kind of dedication is exciting to watch. Keep an eye on Big Bluff Ranch because they're doing some exciting things. And if you'd like to learn more about the exciting things we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.